0: I'm J.G. Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews on Amazon's been out for years, but this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire and national security state operate using Vietnam, and I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Producer's credits for this edition of Parallax Views. Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Galen, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Justin, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, and The Mirror Framework, M-E-E-R, Framework. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners at the $10 tier or above at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be speaking with New York Times Global Economic Correspondent Peter S. Goodman about his fascinating new book, Davos Man, How Billionaires Devoured the World. Davos Man, of course, refers to the wealthy individuals who attend the highly exclusive annual World Economic Forum conference in Davos, Switzerland. In the following conversation, you'll learn all about that conference and its attendees as Peter and I delve into how these billionaires devoured the world. A note that this was recorded on February 23rd, 2022. And with that being said, let's get right to the conversation. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I've been wanting to have on this program for some time after discovering his latest book, Peter S. Goodman, author of Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So Peter, uh, if we could, I want to start by telling a a little bit of a story. I remember I was on uh, another podcast, another person's uh, show recently, and uh, the the topic of Davos and uh, the World Economic Forum uh, actually came up, and I remember saying I I think it's an important topic to discuss, uh, not necessarily from the angle that we're hearing from you know a lot of uh, odd figures on the internet that have this sort of weird conspiratorial view of Davos, but just as a, a meeting of the sort of a billionaire class, and I remember someone responded by saying uh, Davos doesn't matter. You know, that, that's what, you know, people that, that talk about the Bilderbergs and the, that's what the conspiracy theorists talk about. And I just, I, I had to like sort of scratch my head and say, well, you know, there are, you know, wacky people that, uh, turned Davos into a big conspiracy theory, but this is a real meeting of, uh, you know, transnational power players. So how do you sort of broach this topic, Uh, while also avoiding the sort of pitfalls of of people who uh,
1: sort of dismiss it as all conspiracy talk? Yeah, that's a great question, Uh, because uh, my book is in no way trading in conspiracy theories. And I think it's actually uh, a disservice to suggest that what's happened to our economies and our societies is the result of some sort of puppeteer conspiracy. You know, that's so easily debunked. Uh, And then uh, it actually serves the ends of the group I call Davos Man. I mean, the billionaire class, this this term coined by the political scientist Samuel Huntington back in 2004, to refer to people who go to the World Economic Forum in Davos, but I'm using it to refer to the billionaire class that would have us believe that if we simply organize our economies around uh, delivering more wealth to the people who have most of it we will all somehow benefit something that is in real life happened 0 times and i think that if we pretend that you know it's the illuminati it's davos it's you know whatever it's some secret court or somewhere where everybody's whispering and and uh, and the rest of us are all getting screwed and that's how the world works. Well, then you just debunk that and then that validates what we've actually got, which is uh, this uh, process where our democracies very openly have been warped and manipulated by Davos man. I mean, I, I, I tend to think of the changes that I'm writing about. And I'm writing about this systematic bottom-up transfer of wealth uh, from everyone to a handful of billionaires through a perversion of the tax code, through a lifting of antitrust enforcement, through weakening of uh, collective bargaining rights for labor. And this has all happened so gradually that it's almost invisible. You know, I mean, it's a little bit like describing climate change, right? Like no one particularly cares if some body of water rises by some fraction of a millimeter over a couple of years. But then when there's a storm, and we're all underwater, and there's people floating around uh, hungry, uh, that's when we notice. And the pandemic is that storm. I mean, if you hadn't noticed already that there were huge numbers of people in in harm's way and vulnerable uh, with uh, their uh, livelihood uh, and their safety essentially being diminished for the benefit of the billionaires uh, who've managed to dismantle government programs and transfer the proceeds to themselves, who've managed to saturate us uh, and our, our, our discourse with this idea that they're going to look out for us. Well, the pandemic has really brought that home. Because you know how else to explain the fact that a company like Pfizer can uh, monopolize the fruits of uh, their terrific COVID vaccines. I mean, we, we should we should be grateful for those vaccines, but we should have a say, given that a lot of this is publicly financed research that went into it, we should have a say over how those vaccines are distributed, and they've simply sold them off to the highest bidder uh, around the world. And that's, that's how we end up in a situation where you have frontline medical workers in parts of Africa and South Asia who have no protection whatsoever while they're administering to COVID patients while, you know, we're having active debates about, you know, how soon should we give boosters to children in places like the United States? Uh, That didn't happen by accident, and it didn't happen in secret. That's not some sort of conspiracy. That just happened through the machinations of, of democracy with Davos man enjoying, you know, the fruits of legions of lobbyists and accountants and 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 lawyers. So in terms of how we view Davos itself, I mean Davos is this place where uh, the billionaire class kind of virtue signals to itself, it does play a role in uh, deal making that's beyond the purview of regulators, journalists, Um, I mean, Davos is uh, most simply and forward facing this gathering of uh, billionaires and academics and heads of state and the occasional Hollywood celebrity, and there's supposed to be this kind of earnest uh, collection of seminars on all the big issues of our time on climate change on on racial and and gender uh, imbalance uh, and and the agenda if if we if we accept it at face value is about you know sort of how we make progress I mean, it all it all unfolds under the the banner committed to improving the state of the world which is an incredible irony given that the people who go to davos are by any measure the ultimate beneficiaries of the status quo. But the cool kids at Davos will tell you that they don't even set foot inside the Congress Center for any of these panel discussions. I mean, you know, they may go for the simulation of the Syrian refugee experience. I've, I've actually seen this, this is a real thing, where they submit to being blindfolded and led around in the dark while someone's hollering at them, demanding their papers in a language they don't understand. And then they, uh, you know, congratulate themselves for uh, their empathy before they go off and they have truffles and caviar and champagne at some oh, dinner but, that's underwritten not, by some not to
0: interrupt you, but that bank that that's so. Um, I, I didn't want to interrupt you, but that that just oh, go ahead. that just that that blows my mind. Like the idea that they're doing a a Syrian refugee. Uh, simulation and thinking, oh, this shows that I'm empathetic and I care about this issue because that doesn't seem much to do for, uh, it doesn't do much for the
1: actual refugees. It, well, it doesn't. And uh, I mean, twin that with the fact that uh, another thing that doesn't do much for the actual refugees is the scarcity uh, in much of the European Union, uh, which has just done uh, a miserable job of uh, dealing with the force of uh, mass migration landing on uh, its shores. I mean, these are the former colonial powers whose colonial subjects have shown up in distress. uh, And there's, instead of there being coherent policy at the European Union level, there's just been a whole bunch of finger pointing. So, you know, Italy on the front lines, uh, Greece uh, left really to their own devices with very little assistance from the European Union and countries to the north, you know, closing their borders and. Uh, in some cases, just just mass, you know, moving people out of their countries into the next country. I mean, it's kind of a beggar thy neighbor set of policies. None of this is helped by uh, the same Davos men who show up in Davos, you know, going through the simulation, congratulating themselves for their empathy. When at home, what they're doing is slashing taxes and figuring out new ways to avoid paying the taxes that are already on the books. These things go together. Part of the reason why it's been so difficult for the European Union to muster, a coherent strategy uh, is because so many countries have never really recovered from uh, the last crisis. I mean, this is the sovereign debt crisis that followed the 2008 uh, global financial crisis. I mean, countries on the front line like Italy, Spain, uh, Portugal, very high rates of unemployment. Uh, their their government uh, books uh, really just ravaged, and yet they're constrained by European Union austerity uh, from spending. Uh, to build up a greater deficits, and so the idea that you're just going to find some more money for the refugees showing up—that's you know—that's going to be tough politics in any country at any time, but it's especially difficult in, in a country like Italy, where you have youth unemployment rates, you know, pushing twenty percent. We have huge numbers of thirty and even forty-year-olds living with their parents because they can't find a job. So before we continue more in depth on
0: sort of what Davos man has has wrought, I want to talk a little bit about that term Davos man. As you mentioned, it comes from the political scientist Samuel P. Huntington, who is probably most known for his book, The Clash of Civilizations. Uh, But he wrote this article, I believe it was in the national interest um, in the early 2000s, entitled uh, Dead Souls, The Denationalization of the American Elite. And this is where he uh, uses the term Davos man to describe those who are part of a new global elite in an increasingly integrated global economy. Uh, He also sort of calls them gold-collar workers or even cosmocrats. And he says that they're comprised of fewer than 4% of the American people and that these transnationalists have little need for national loyalty, view national boundaries as obstacles that thankfully are vanishing, and see national governments as residues from the past whose only useful function is to facilitate the elite's Global operations, I was wondering if you could comment on uh, Huntington's analysis there, uh, what he gets right, maybe what he misses. Uh, wh- what do you think of uh, how Huntington conceptualizes Davos man?
1: Well, I think this central idea that Davos man doesn't have allegiance to particular countries uh, is uh, somewhat right and somewhat wrong. I mean, it's it's useful, it's a useful framework in that It's true that Davos man's finances and assets are so complex. I mean, they they stretch across multiple jurisdictions. He has need of accountants and tax lawyers in multiple jurisdictions. But it's not so much that uh, as a result, there's no allegiance to nation. It's that there's an ability to argue that nations are feckless in the face of the kind of globalization uh, that we've known. And this is a very self-serving uh kind of seeming sophistication right i mean like if if we're sophisticated citizens of of our of our times we're supposed to you know just throw up our hands at the idea that you can have any kind of fair taxation system where wealthy people are able to move their fortunes around uh the globe you know quite seamlessly we're supposed to uh uh just uh acknowledge that you know Technology has changed everything. Globalization has changed everything. Uh, this is all a kind of elaborate uh, justification for the status quo. And I, I, and I think Huntington is right uh, in, in viewing the weak state uh, in contrast to the powerful Davos man. But this is not by accident. Uh, I mean, it's important to understand that this 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 is an idea that's been forged uh, very, very uh, carefully by Davosmen as a kind of prophylactic against the exercise of democracy. Because it's absurd to to claim that you know a government like the United States can't do anything about inequality in the face of. Uh, global flows of capital and technology and and globalization in general. You know, of course, we can. Uh, Of course, there's much we can do, uh, whether we're talking about wealth taxes or closing off the loopholes that have allowed uh, companies to book profits in foreign jurisdictions and then uh, charge their American operations licensing fees to just make their taxes disappear, so that huge companies are routinely paying zero in taxes on billions of dollars in, in, in income. I mean, we can we can call their bluff and say, okay, you want to move your entire operation outside of the world's largest consumer market? You know, go for it. I mean, otherwise, we're gonna we're gonna get in your business and 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 understand uh, your flows of money. Uh, and and I I I do think that a part of you know a major reason why I wrote this book is to take away uh, this idea to challenge and 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 reveal and then ideally eviscerate uh, this notion that we either accept the status quo as it is with tremendous inequality to go along with the great innovations we become accustomed to like you know modern healthcare like uber and google uh, and th- this idea that we either have all of that or we have none of it, and we might as well just be Venezuelans, you know, diving into dumpsters for our dinner. This is a product of Huntington's uh, kind of um, uh, emphasis on on the global quality of Davos, man. And we we got to get back to governance. He's sort of saying, since they're transnational, they can't be
0: really contained or regulated by any. You know, national governments, but
1: you're saying uh, maybe that's a little bit too fatalistic. Yeah. I I mean, is global movement of capital and tax avoidance a problem? Yeah, you bet it's a problem. And it will require serious international cooperation to deal with. uh, But it's not a problem that's impossible to solve. I mean, if we had a wealth tax in the United States, you could collect a lot of money that we're not collecting now. I mean, Jeff Bezos is a guy who makes $83,000 a year uh, as a salary from Amazon, that's about what a public school teacher in California earns. So if we simply have income taxes, even if we collect income taxes fairly and transparently, Bezos is not paying anywhere close to what the people who are scrubbing the toilets at this multiple residences are paying as a share of their income and wealth. Most of his wealth is tied up in Amazon shares, which have been worth somewhere between $150 billion and $200 billion, depending upon the day and what's happening in the market. I mean, that's a problem that doesn't require... Uh, we don't need the cooperation of, of Ireland to deal with that problem. We can just deal with that problem through legislation.
0: With regards to Davos Man, he obviously has uh, historical antecedents. And I'm thinking specifically of the robber barons of the sort of later half of the 19th century here in the US. You know, we, we think of uh, Andrew Carnegie or J.P. Or Morgan. How is Davos Man maybe different from? Uh, the robber barons of those years, uh, he seems like maybe an evolution of them.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the robber barons, by and large, were content to end up with most of the money as an end in itself. I mean, they like to put their names on performance uh, centers, university campuses. I mean, that was partially vanity, partially about, you know, here's your compensation for bonking labor organizers on the head, uh, in plain view and monopolizing the gains of capitalism, but but really they were content to just live it, removed from the rest of society, uh, and and not 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 be bothered. Uh, whereas Davos man is ask, asking for our adulation, a Davos man would have us believe. Well, well, you know, rather than get my characterization, I mean, let's just look at what well, what am I five key characters had to say. This is Mark Benioff, who's the CEO of Salesforce, this large Silicon Valley tech company, who literally said at Davos last year, the CEOs are the true heroes of the pandemic. I mean, he wasn't talking about frontline medical workers. He wasn't talking about workers who are delivering our packages or, or putting food on our tables or emptying bedpans in senior citizens' homes. The CEOs, he said, are the heroes because they delivered vaccines, they delivered credit to stave off bankruptcies. And he specifically said the government didn't save you. We saved you uh, and not for profit, but to save the world. Does that include the the people
0: in the global South who haven't necessarily got as many of the vaccines as those of us in the North?
1: Well, that's that's one of the many uh, points that needs to be made (laughs) answerable to this. I mean, that is Essentially, uh, it, the central Davos man protective argument against the exercise of our democracy, right, to get to have a say over how capitalism functions, right? That's that's Davos man saying we billionaires have got this just. Uh, stand down with your progressive taxation, with your thought about rules on how we distribute vaccines. We'll just take care of this. And yeah, I think your point is, is, is really important. I mean, take a look at a company like Pfizer, one of the key reasons why we've got vaccines. And thank goodness for Pfizer's researchers, thank goodness for Pfizer's execution. A lot of the research that goes into those COVID vaccines, uh, publicly financed. And yet, we, the public, have allowed Pfizer to sell those doses around the world to the highest bidder. Uh, and, you know, there's some token, oh, here are a few million doses for COVAX, uh, this, uh, this institution that it never had a chance. I mean, this was this, uh, this multilateral uh, uh, pairing of the World Health Organization, an outfit called Gavi and another called CEPI, which are all about uh, vaccine equality. And it's just completely failed. I mean, nobody's given them doses. Essentially, the richest governments on earth have have joint ventured with uh, companies like Pfizer to make sure that if you live in a country like the US or the UK or Germany or Japan, you've got plenty of protection available. And the bulk of humanity is left out of this. And this is not just a humanitarian catastrophe. I mean, it's it's. I mean, we, we should be outraged that there are doctors in parts of Africa and South Asia who are administering to COVID patients without protection at a time when we're given you know booster shots uh, to anybody who wants one in America. That that's that's an outrage. But it's also just on a purely uh, selfish uh, level for for citizens of wealthy countries and and outrage because we are effectively subsidizing the monopoly royalties uh, and the increased uh, share, shareholder values of pharmaceutical executives like Albert Bourla, the CEO of Pfizer, through the tune of perpetuating the pandemic? I mean, how do we end up with Omicron uh, and Delta? And God help us, the other variants that may get, you know, assigned to new letters of the Greek alphabet. It's precisely because we've allowed our publicly financed research to be monopolized by a handful of of shareholder catering executives who've distributed these vaccines around the world uh, to their own narrow interests as opposed to collective societal interests. So it's interesting, you've actually been to Davos.
0: Several times. Yeah, I think I've been nine times. So you've attended some of these seminars. And I find it interesting, when I read the World Economic Forum website, you know, a lot of the people that are interviewed or, or write articles, a lot of it, I think, strokes the ego of the the uh, the rich attendees. You know, I was just reading something uh, from the World Economic Forum. It was an interview with Michio Kaku where he said technology will bring about the perfected form of capitalism. And I, I don't right. even know what that means. Uh, right, right, right. And there, there's also things like um, I think Ariana Huffington has given a, a seminar there where she talked about well, workers uh, should sleep more because uh, then they'll be more productive, and I happen to agree with her on that point. But I find it interesting that a lot of these seminars seem to put the onus of change on uh, you know the, the labor force and that's you know exactly the, right. the,
1: the plebs. Well, that's how I ended up writing the book according to the uh, construct that I've used. I mean, originally. I was working on a book about uh, global economic inequality and the outbreak of uh, right-wing populist movements. So, you know, I was living in London, Brexit was happening. I was writing a lot about Trump and his trade war after he got elected. I was writing about the the rise of the extreme right in places like Italy and France and even Sweden, you know, the supposed bastion of social democracy. And uh, and then. I found myself, uh, as I was putting that book together, going back to a, uh, a meeting of the forum in Davos in January 2017. So this is six months into Brexit, Trump is about to be inaugurated. And there's a sense amongst the, uh, well, the Davos man that, you know, something is going differently than expected in the global economy seems like uh, suddenly a democracy itself is producing these very volatile uh, outcomes and we better school ourselves in inequality so i I went around to kind of uh take a measure of what solutions davos man was willing to uh explore and embrace as a potential solution inequality and to your point exactly yeah i listened to ariana huffington who i used to work for uh, talk about how, you know, it's all really all about sleep, you know, Uh, we just need comfier pillows. She had just launched this new website that was, uh, Engineered to it was a wellness website that was engineered to vacuum up sponsorships from spas and skin cream companies. I listened to the head of uh, one of India's largest consulting companies say that workers, you know, have to take responsibility for their own training so they can participate in the modern economy. I listened to Ray Dalio, who at the time is a hedge funder who was worth something like 17 billion dollars, say that what we needed to do was deregulate. So the animal spirits could be further unleashed, and we would have a more conducive atmosphere for making money, as if uh, somehow a guy uh, making $17 billion was a a man we should listen to about the shortage of uh, environments conducive to making money. I mean, I listen to everything except for uh, we, the people who are at Davos, the billionaires, are going to have to give something up. We're going to have to give it up through progressive taxation. I mean, they're, they're, they love to talk about what they're going to give up on their own terms. So they'll they'll talk to you forever about their, their philanthropy, uh, which, if you look at the details, always amounts to like uh, just token uh, pennies on the dollar. And this is money that's discretionary, right? We can't count on it. You can't build a government program. Uh, You you can't ensure that somebody's got health care or help with housing or that we can finance uh, education or power grids uh, based on discretionary dollars. But this is this is the formulation that Davos man always relies on. And so that it was exactly that notion that prompted me to uh, to write a book about Davos man, per se, because what I came to see was that the scarcity that was the beginning of my narrative. Uh, I had to go back in time and look at where does the scarcity come from? And it comes from this systematic bottom-up transfer of wealth from all of us to a handful uh, of Davos men. And then I I, I wanted to actually understand the stories that these guys are telling uh, to themselves. And so then I I set about finding a a few characters so I could really hang it on. And then the pandemic happens, of course. And the pandemic uh, initially... Uh, seems to diminish the value of my entire inquiry until quickly I realized, no, actually it heightens and exposes everything it is that I'm writing about. You know, It's one thing to write about a long-term uh, diminution of, of healthcare spending so that we can finance tax cuts for billionaires. It's another thing to note that the U.S. has lost Uh, roughly a third of its hospital rooms in the 20 years leading up to the pandemic at a time when people are literally dying for lack of hospital rooms, intensive uh, care capacity, ventilators. You know, suddenly this is much more relevant to look at the fact that somebody like Steve Schwartzman, the founder of Blackstone, this giant private equity company, uh, and and a, a real estate investor, you know, has invested aggressively into healthcare in the decade leading up to the pandemic, and these things are not accidental. right? they're they're very much related. He's part of a wave of investment into healthcare that turns healthcare into a business, not all that different from an airline or uh, a fast food franchise, where the the. Patient is now a customer, we got to maximize the revenues, the people working there, the, the, the infrastructure itself, these are costs to be managed. And so, so the pandemic reveals uh, the, uh, the stakes of this long term transition that I'm writing about, but it all goes back to your point about Davos to you know, Davos meant be unwilling to sacrifice. And what we hear about at the forum again and again is like, it's the pursuit of win-win solutions. Everything is about win-win solutions because if there is a win-win solution, then no one has to sacrifice.
0: And this actually brings us to something that's being talked about a lot now, which is this idea of stakeholder capitalism. And I, I think it's kind of sad that we have this whole culture war now over you know people yelling about Uh, Oh, woke capitalism, because the real issue is uh, talking about stakeholder capitalism, which it sounds really good on paper. You know, it it makes us feel good to talk about this idea of stakeholder capitalism. But I'm very skeptical that it's going to actually address uh, the inequalities. But first, maybe you could describe what this concept of stakeholder capitalism is.
1: Sure. Yeah. So stakeholder capitalism is an idea that goes back to the 1970s. It's a term that seems to have been coined by Klaus Schwab, who's the founder of the World Economic Forum. Uh, and he he loves to talk about public-private partnerships. I mean, his whole MO is government and business will work together to solve the problems of, of modern life. Uh, and in this construction, we're all stakeholders. You know, The environment's a stakeholder, labor's a stakeholder. Well, in recent years, a big business itself has uh, embraced uh, this uh, this term and has really uh, driven it uh, to a, a level at which uh, it has great currency, at least if you believe a lot of the credulous stuff written by access journalists. So, people like Mark Benioff and Larry Fink, who's the world's largest asset manager. This is a guy whose whose company BlackRock manages ten trillion dollars of investment around the world. This is you know university portfolios. Uh, the university endowments, pension funds, all, all sorts of pots of money. These two guys have celebrated stakeholder capitalism as the answer to Milton Friedman's uh, shareholder maximization, which has had a uh, governing force going back to the 1970s. You know, with Friedman, it was all about businesses just need to focus on profits. They need to return profit to their shareholders And uh, through that, we'll get strong companies, and that means uh, employers will then hire, uh, and we'll get uh, trickle down. We'll get economic growth. We'll get innovation. That's the world that we've been living in. Stakeholder capitalism has become uh, the attempt by people like Benioff and Fink to say, "You don't have to regulate us. You don't have to uh, give give the people progressive taxation. We don't need labor unions. Uh, What we need is." Uh, billionaires running companies who will be sensitive to the needs of society. They'll, they will treat, uh, their various constituencies as stakeholders. So they talk about labor. They never talk about labor unions. That's a term that's anathema for, for Davos, man. They talk about, uh, societal needs. Uh, they talk about local communities. They talk about government, but you know, your skepticism is, uh, It is kind of impossible to avoid because, again, the pandemic has been a tremendous test of this concept. I mean, back in the summer of 2019, uh, Jamie Dimon, another one of my five primary characters, who's the CEO of JPMorgan Chase, America's largest bank, he's then running the Business Roundtable, this Washington lobby shop comprised of the CEOs of major companies. And the Business Roundtable, uh, declares this new statement of a purpose of a corporation, which is all about stakeholder capitalism. 180 plus CEOs signed this statement, basically saying Milton Friedmanism is behind us. Now it's all about stakeholder capitalism. And let's look at what happens during the pandemic. Well, first of all, the Business Roundtable appoints a COVID task force Headed by the late CEO of Marriott, this guy, Arnie Sorensen, who makes a big show on the day that he says uh, back in March 2020, oh, it's so painful. I have to lay off three quarters of my American workforce because of the pandemic, but I'm going to share in your pain. I'm going to give up my salary of more than a billion dollars a year. Doesn't say anything about a stock based compensation, which is more than $8 million. And uh, just a couple of weeks later, Marriott pays out several million dollars in dividends to shareholders. Enough, you know, that could have uh, allowed them to continue to at least pay some uh, form of furlough money uh, to the to the housekeeping staff laid off on mass, with large numbers of people worried about their health care in the middle of a pandemic. Jeff Bezos signs the Business Roundtable's statement of a purpose of a corporation. And Jeff Bezos, of course, allows his warehouse workers in the first wave of the pandemic to labor in warehouses with no protection, no face masks, no gowns, no hand sanitizer. He doubles down Davos man style when he's critiqued for this. Oh, my, my people are essential workers. They're engaged in the heroic work of saving other people's grandmothers. They're distributing all of this stuff, the stuff that he's denying his own workers you know, to other people. And he actually fires, the company fires the head of a labor uprising at a warehouse in Staten Island, New York, who wants uh, everyone to, uh, he, he's actually accused of violating quarantine when he shows up to lead this walkout. Chris Smalls, yes. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the irony of Chris Smalls getting fired for violating quarantine, but he wants everyone in the plant to be quarantined because he's concerned about, COVID spreading through the plant, but he wants there to be paid sick leave. And Jeff Bezos, who's now supposedly all about stakeholder capitalism, his company's been lobbying for years to avoid paying out paid sick leave. Uh, And so as a result, uh, you have large numbers of people in Amazon warehouses put in in harm's way. Uh, I mean, this is a pattern that we've seen.
0: I was going to say, also, I mean, you have Larry Fink, uh, the aforementioned CEO of BlackRock, who is uh, doing things that aren't, you know, helping poor countries uh, that are being devastated to the pen by the pandemic, presenting himself as, you know, uh, you know, this apostle of a new humanitarian, more humanitarian form of capitalism, this idea of stakeholder capitalism. But like I said, meanwhile, uh, you know, what is he doing for these poor countries? In a lot of ways, uh, he's turning the screws on them.
1: Right now, that's a hugely important story. So I tell the story in my book of how Larry Fink personally turns the screws to Argentina. Uh, Larry Fink had uh, bought very credulously into this story that the previous president Mauricio Macri represented this break with the left-wing populism uh, and the neoliberalism that uh, seemed to go in cycles in Argentina. That Macri was the vanguard of a new Argentina. It was going to be. Uh, responsible, and it was going to be pro-business. And so Larry Fink takes a lot of the pension funds that he's managing and steers them into emerging market bonds issued by the Argentine government. And now in the middle of the pandemic, Argentina uh, can't pay. And their healthcare systems are under great strain. Poverty's on the increase. You've got uh, people flocking to food banks to support their families. And Larry Fink leads the biggest uh, and most important consortium of bondholders very personally demanding, you know, an extra couple of cents on the dollar uh, to avoid uh, a, a leaner settlement. I mean, he essentially arguing, you know, nobody stiffs Davos, man, and forces the Argentine government to come up with this money, even though the International Monetary Fund, which is not exactly known as like a bleeding heart institution, is saying, hey, if you push Argentina to pay more, uh, they're not even going to be able to pay you back. I mean, forget whether this is humanitarian, forget whether you're living according to the principles of stakeholder capitalism, the IMF doesn't trade in that. They just do this, this basic analysis where they say, they're paying the maximum. And if you push them to pay more, they're not going to be able to invest and grow. And then all the bondholders won't get paid back. But Fink makes this uh, really kind of a holy grail because he has put himself in the position where he's steered all of these. you know These are the retirement funds for firefighters from England to the center of America. They're now on the hook for these emerging market bonds. And he doesn't want to have to go back to them and say, well, I lost your money in Argentina. Moreover, Argentina is just the first of many poor countries or developing countries, they're going to have to work out debt problems. I mean, at the time, you've got countries from Pakistan to Ghana that are limiting their expenditures on public health in the middle of a pandemic so they can stay good with their creditors scattered from London to Frankfurt to New York to Beijing. Uh, and Fink is, despite his championing of stakeholder capitalism, leading the charge of uh, serving as a kind of uh, bare-knuckled collection agent in a pandemic.
0: You know, it's interesting. I keep thinking of the uh, old term uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, For instance, when you talk about uh, Mark Benioff, who, you know, he's a Silicon Valley guy, right? And he believes in progressive change, but he's also engaging in legalized tax avoidance. You know, uh, these are the wolves in sheep's clothing,
1: it sounds like. Well, Benioff is a really interesting character because his philanthropy is quite considerable. I mean, he, he's something of a Silicon Valley cliche. I mean, this is a guy who will tell you that like, he started his company because he was suffering this existential crisis when he was working at Oracle. And he goes off to southern India where he meets the hugging saint. And she embraces him in a room full of incense and says that the true meaning of his life is to make a fortune and then give back through philanthropy. Well, you know, to his credit, he... He actually does uh, contribute 1% of his company's revenues and staff time to all sorts of philanthropic causes. He wrote a check for about $10 million to finance a ballot initiative in San Francisco that ultimately led to a levying of taxes uh, on large tech companies like his own to finance uh, increased services for homeless people. But at the same time, yes, he's engaged in tremendous tax shenanigans, he his company Salesforce has paid the modest sum of zero in federal taxes, not once but twice in the last several years, and that makes everything else a rounding error. I mean, if I mean this is a guy, by the way, who says at Davos last year, while he's saying that he's he's the hero, he's saying, you know, the government didn't save you, non governmental organizations didn't save you, we saved you, and not for profit, but to save the world. I mean, this is a clear uh, example. Of the kind of demonizing of government as a justification for not paying taxes while arguing that his own philanthropy will solve life's problems. But if you're paying zero in federal taxes, well, who's paying for the highways? Who's financing uh, the educational system that's that's needed to produce the people who can go to work for your company to help you make your next billion? I mean, what happens to housing? When uh, what happens to homelessness, you know, an issue that Benioff clearly does care a lot about uh, when Benioff is lobbying uh, for giant tax cuts that then make the stock market boom uh, while uh, he's fighting off wealth taxes and paying himself in stock, which is a large driver of the very homelessness of the San Francisco Bay Area that he supposedly wants to counter. So what's interesting
0: to me is that uh, you mentioned Klaus Schwab and and you sort of pin him as uh, one of the symbiotic accomplices that sort of aids Davos man. And I always found it interesting that a few years ago, uh, Schwab said of Donald Trump that he was uh, inclusive. And, uh, right. you know, he, 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 he uh, praised him for his optimism. Uh, so what's the connection between, uh, you know, Trump, uh, Klaus Schwab and the Davos
1: man? here's the, the the basic truth of it is klaus schwab and the rest of the davos men they are not beholden to any particular ideology they're not beholden to any model uh they are uh, mostly driven by the bottom line and the questions of ideology narrative you know all that gets formed uh, after the outcome is fashioned and schwab is a guy who has built Uh, This earnest gathering of academics and business leaders going back to the 1970s into what is still nominally a nonprofit, but it's a highly successful business, right? I mean, Schwab gets businesses to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in membership. For which they get access to one another. So while uh, Davos man may generally not go to any of the earnest panel discussions, Davos man is very happy to get access to these private executive lounges, uh, where uh, Schwab will play matchmaker. I mean, if if you if you pay enough, then you get these exclusive membership benefits, where Schwab will then you know introduce the head of. Uh, the Emirati monarchy to the CEO of a fossil fuel company in Europe that's trying to get access to the next great holding beyond purview of, you know, the SEC or other financial regulators, no journalists, no other annoying do-gooders, nobody to disclose to. You can just meet privately in a room. So Schwab if, he's, if you ask Schwab about his principles, he goes on about transparent governance and fairness and social justice and progressive taxation and there needs to be rules and all, you know, capitalism 2.0, but Schwab, Schwab is really driven by a desire to get powerful people to show up uh, at the forum, which is an inducement for other powerful people to keep paying those membership fees, which by the way, have allowed the forum to purchase parcels of land that have connected Schwab's home in the sort of Beverly Hills of Geneva uh, with the forum's headquarters on Lake Geneva. Uh, this is what has allowed Schwab to go gallivanting around the globe uh, with the, the, the tab picked up by the forum, you know, using uh, access uh, at, di- at steep discounts to, you know, first class uh, cabins uh, on uh, member airlines like Swiss Air. Uh, and so Donald Trump, is a guy who is, you know, he's a great catch, right? He's, he's somebody powerful. I mean, I've watched Schwab Law, not only Trump, but Xi Jinping back in 2017, where he essentially uh, praised him for uh, arriving with the mandate of his people, you know, uh, come again. Was there an election in China that I missed uh, somewhere? I mean, he, he praised Narendra Modi, who's the Hindu supremacist who runs India, as an exemplar for diversity, this was just about at the same time when a member of Modi's Hindu supremacist party uh, offered a million-dollar bounty for the head of a Bollywood director who had apparently offended uh, some um, a group of Hindus with this depiction of of, of, of uh, a Hindu story. Uh, So, you know, Schwab will say just about anything about anybody if it allows him to uh, get them to keep coming. And as for the Davos men themselves, well, so I was in Davos in January 2018 when Trump arrives, and there's this kind of titillation in the press corps, like we're witnessing the buildup to a prize fight. I mean, Davos, man, cares about multilateral cooperation and attacking climate change, and Trump is supposedly this wrecking ball, pointed at the liberal world order. He's you know, removed the US from the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, and so we're supposed to pretend the Davos man is aghast at Trump's presence. Uh, and of course, uh, behind the scenes, if you go talking to the people who actually pay the bills, these are tech CEOs, uh, heads of global banks, consulting companies, they're just delighted that Trump is going to cut taxes and deregulate. These are the things that Davos man actually cares about and the rest of its artifice. I mean, I mean, they would they would say to me, like, well, you know, we we'd prefer that he not say all these misogynistic things. It's a little uncomfortable for us to be he's a little bit that. too
0: too gauche
1: for them, but otherwise they're okay with it. yeah. I mean, it's about packaging, right? I mean, he's putting money in their pocket. I mean, that's that's the currency that they understand. And I, I think that's a key point too,
0: because I mean. The right increasingly will talk uh, in in pejorative ways about Davos, right? Um, And and you have this sort of, I would say, almost like Ross Perot style, uh, we're going to bring back industry and help the workers sentiment that people like Trump are trying to push. But they're really not doing much for uh, the American labor force. They're actually
1: enriching Davos man more. Oh, very much so. I mean, let's understand, and we saw this in Brexit too, let's understand that Trump's candidacy is underwritten by people like Steve Schwartzman. Well, he didn't support him the first time, though he he, he supported his inauguration. And uh, to the tune of a quarter million dollars and then became Trump's biggest backer uh, in, in big business. I mean, these policies are supposed to be about restoring jobs to the American heartland. I mean, in fact, Trump's trade war across the board tariffs on steel, not just from China, but from allies like Canada, like like Germany, like Britain. You know, this is supposed to be about putting working people uh, back to, to work. And the result is that, Excuse me, I'm sorry. Um, You know, Trump is a reality TV star, right? He understands the value of uh, going out to Granite City, Illinois, where there's a giant steel mill where I spent a little time in my book and, you know, mugging for the cameras with the steel workers with their hard hats on, getting back to work in a plant that had been shuttered. But the truth is that six times as many working people in America get up and go to work in plants that buy steel. Uh, As there are people who go to work at plants that make steel. So the net impact of increasing the price of steel in America is to hurt the competitiveness of companies. But, you know, Trump understands that that's just like a boring footnote in a Commerce Department report, whereas, you know, a picture with steel workers who are delighted about the trade war with China, well, that's gold. So Trump uses this uh, to signal to working people that he's on their side while vacuuming up checks from people like Steve Schwarzman and giving it back uh, tenfold through uh, giant tax cuts and and deregulation. So just a few more things here, just so people think that we're,
0: you know, not just picking on Trump, who I think deserves a lot of picking on, along with people like uh, McConnell and Mnuchin. You know, you also say that some of the other accomplices, the Davos man Includes uh, Macron in France and also even uh,
1: Bill Clinton. Could you speak to that a little bit? Oh, especially Bill Clinton. I mean, Bill Clinton delivers this fantastic gift to the tax avoiders uh, among Davos men. Uh, I mean, it's Clinton's treasury run by first Bob Rubin, who goes off to make a fortune at Citibank, and Larry Summers, uh, who, you know, allow companies to book. Revenues in an accommodating overseas jurisdiction like Ireland, and then charge a licensing fee to their uh, American operations uh, for the use of their intellectual property, which just makes their revenues disappear, makes their profits rather disappear. On paper, I mean, imagine if this was something that like working people could avail themselves of if, if Chris Smalls at Amazon could say, well, I'm gonna on paper have my work boots reside in uh, Ireland, and then I'm going to charge myself several hundred dollars a day for the use of those work boots. Therefore, my income is actually negative. Uh, so I'll be giving a huge tax refund from Uncle Sam. You know, Life doesn't work that way for people who can't hire lobbyists by the hundreds. So Clinton plays a, a key role. Clinton also buys into the idea that scale uh, is uh, quintessential to American business. It plays a key role in, in limiting um, the uh, uh, enforcement of antitrust, which allows companies like Amazon to amass monopoly power. And Clinton also does the bidding of Davos man in seeking to gain uh, China access to the World Trade Organization, which eventually happens, you know, in 2001. Clinton and Larry Summers give all these speeches and go around arguing like, this isn't about money. This is about democratizing China. You know, if if we integrate China Uh, with the global community, this middle class will rise, and they'll demand all the things that middle class people always demand, including freedom and liberty. Uh, You know, what's really going on is that CEOs of multinational corporations are trying to get access to the Chinese market, because China is potentially the largest consumer market for everything. And they want to move production to China because China has no labor unions. China uh, is policed by the Chinese Communist Party. And so, you know, Walmart becomes the ultimate joint venture partner with the People's Republic of China. I mean, talk about unbelievable ironies. And the result of this is massive profits for the shareholder class, a lot of really cheap consumer goods uh, for Americans. We can see that the freedom part doesn't work out. Uh, And meanwhile, a lot of working people in the United States uh, find that their wages are now in direct competition with completely unprotected workers in China who are working for employers who don't have to deal with environmental standards, who don't have to deal with basic workplace safety standards, and who can essentially get what they need in terms of preferential credit from the Chinese Communist Party. That is something that Bill Clinton played a central role in enabling.
0: So it's interesting for me, I I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Davos Man in relation to um migrants or immigrants, because you know i, I I'm not uh, like this I'm not into this whole nativist sort of trumpist line about immigrants, but I, I also feel like that the ultra wealthy it's not so much that they care about immigrants as they want to maybe exploit migrants uh, for cheap labor uh, is is that going too far because i, I there's something oh, that's no, no, no. always been no, that's uncomfortable true. about
1: that. No, no. I mean, this is uh, if you go back to the story of I mean, so the, the current mode of the right in most of the developed world uh, is to demonize immigrants because uh, it's good politics with some segment of the electorate. But no, 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 there's no question that immigrants were systematically viewed as the as part of uh, reducing Uh, The collective bargaining power of labor and undermining labor power in countries like the US that you would you would open the gates to large numbers of lesser skilled people who would be hungry to do the sorts of jobs, it was difficult to find, uh, you know native born people uh, willing to do you would pay them very little and the result of that would be, uh, you would reduce your costs, which meant uh, you would increase the returns to shareholders. And it's it's only more recently that there's now been this backlash uh, to immigration uh, from uh, some of the same uh, political interest groups that were, you know, doing the bidding of Davos man previously, because now it's good politics to scare people into believing that, that uh, not only their jobs, but their public safety, you know, is on the line, you know, and, and totally contravened by the facts on the ground, but this this fear-mongering makes for good politics from America to Italy to Sweden.
0: Before we close out, the line I'm thinking of while we're having this conversation, I keep thinking of George Carlin, you know, and that line he had, it's a big club and you ain't in it. And that's what it sounds like world, that's what it sounds like the World Economic Forum amounts to. It's the big club and it's very exclusive.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is exclusive. Um, it, it, look, I think we can all of us see through the artifice of the forum. So I, I, it would be wrong for somebody to read my book or listen to this conversation and conclude that like the World Economic Forum is the center of the universe. And that's where everything important goes down. That's not the point at all. Uh, it's the people who go to the World Economic Forum who are the most important actors in terms of of understanding how middle-class life has been undermined. The form itself, it serves uh, as a kind of prop for Davos man's virtue signaling. I think most of us can see through the absurdity of a handful of billionaires going to the top of a, of a mountain and declaring that they're gonna solve all of our problems. But it, it, the idea of trickle down, I mean, what I refer to as the cosmic lie. or I was false... gonna
0: ask you about that next. Go on, go on, I okay. wanna hear about you know, the cosmic well,
1: lie. <laughs> you know, the, the cosmic lie, this idea that if we tax, if, if, if we tax less, we give breaks to the wealthiest people and we deregulate. Uh, the benefits will just magically trickle down to all of us. That idea has real currency, even among people who are prone to be skeptical of claims like Mark Benioff's, you know, we're the, we're the heroes. Like We may find that titillating and even amusing in addition to offensive. Um, but but the central idea, I mean, wh- why do so many Americans believe that we somehow can't afford health care, you know, something that... Every other developed democracy manages to be able to afford. I mean, I mean, the biggest difference between the United States and every other de- developed democracy is that we still charge we, we don't tax rich people to the same extent that other developed democracies do. I mean, this stuff is not complicated. We have insinuated the ideas that have currency at Davos and other gatherings of wealthy people that, you know, we can't ask wealthy people to sacrifice. Or we will monkey wrench our societies, we will undermine the innovation, Uh, we will undermine economic growth. These things are clearly lies. I mean, our history has taught us that. In in fact, it's the opposite. I mean, if we invest in healthcare, infrastructure, if we make it possible for more people to get higher education, uh, if we take away the uncertainties of unemployment uh, and and, uh, other problems that come along, people could actually be more entrepreneurial. Uh, it, it would be easier for people to leave their dead end jobs and go launch startups and 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 behave in entrepreneurial fashion if they weren't worried about denying their families health care. But but these ideas ha- have currency, and that's what has to be revealed and discarded.
0: So for me, the bottom line when I look at the bigger picture of all of this, we mentioned American workers, we mentioned migrants. I don't think anyone is necessarily benefiting from Davos. Man, it seems like everyone. Uh, underneath Davos Man is being exploited, uh, unless they're, uh, as you put it, a, a symbiotic uh, accomplice to Davos Man. It seems like the only
1: beneficiary is, is Davos Man himself. That is the fundamental problem. I mean, if we look at Bezos, who in the middle of the pandemic blasts himself in space, tells us how much he enjoys the view, lands a few minutes later, and thanks his workers as if. You know my triumph is their triumph we're all part of this collective advance of humanity uh and we can all share uh in the joys of my going to space you know it's not just that bezos makes enough to blast himself into space while his warehouse workers are making much less that's the problem it's that he's his wealth is coming because his workers are not doing well. His profits are coming because he's able to exploit his warehouse workers, deprive them of basic protections in a pandemic, deprive them of paid sick leave uh, it, it contribute to a, essentially an undermining of wages throughout American society and an undermining of competitiveness. I mean, his, his, his monopoly power has actually deprived lots of small businesses of the ability to get a fair price for their products in the marketplace. And that's the thing that is most toxic. There, there have always been wealthy people there will always be wealthy people. And the point of my book is not to demonize the billionaires. I mean, you know, you were asking before about stakeholder capitalism. I mean, it, it's not that we have to reject stakeholder capitalism and also you know, engage in punitive confiscations of billionaires' wealth or, or have, have the government uh, get involved in the nitty-gritty of business life. On the contrary, I mean, billionaires should be free to run their companies largely as they see fit. But we should, and and we should, you know, we should be grateful for the e-commerce advances that a company like Amazon has delivered us in the same way that we can be grateful for the vaccines that companies like Pfizer have developed in the middle of the pandemic. But that doesn't mean that we have to accept the status quo. We can be grateful for those things and still say, and we're going to have progressive taxation. We're going to have basic workplace standards. We're going to have antitrust enforcement so that the the marketplace is in fact competitive and there are more opportunities for everyone uh, and and we're going to have uh, a system where labor gets to bargain transparently so workers get their share of the gains too it's not that we're demonizing davos man it's that we're disabusing ourselves of the notion that we can trust davos man to fix our problems we need democracy to fix our problems so it's interesting how you put
0: that because you had to say there that you're not about necessarily demonizing Davos man. And then you got into what you're actually trying to say. I think that's interesting because in a way that shows uh, the the triumph of Davos man. He sort of convinced us that any criticism is, is this sort of uh, just rank demonization. Right. And uh, you know, that's the cunning of Davos man. And I'm wondering is there any end in sight for Davos man's sort of reign? Well, uh, that may be above your
1: pay grade. I don't know. No, uh, no, 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 no. Look, that that's the key question. I mean, certainly there's a lot more attention to inequality uh, because of the pandemic. We've had conversations about uh, new forms of social safety net, whether you favor universal basic income, which is one way to go about it or you know, expanded uh, tax credits uh, for families with children. Uh, there's a conversation about how we provision health care. But it's also true that in the backlash to uh, the uh, list of potential uh, policy changes that we might have undertaken in the US, uh, we see the raw power of Davos man to, to distract, uh, to misinform, Uh, and all of this in the service of the status quo. I mean, when we're confused and we're worried about the costs and we're worrying about deficits instead of the needs uh, that are clearly being underfunded, Davos, man, is winning. So, uh, you know, I would say this. What we need is not radical, and we've fought these battles before and won. I mean, the robber barons uh, turned into the New Deal and expansive social safety nets, uh, and uh, national healthcare programs, uh, so the social security system, to uh, the breakup of monopolies uh, and antitrust enforcement. And for three decades or so after the Second World War, Uh, We really did have a a time when a rising tide lifted all boats. I mean, we don't need a time machine back to the 40s, 50s, 60s, or 70s. We've made a lot of social progress that we want to hang on to. We'd want to go back to the days of Jim Crow and the Vietnam War. But we do want to go back to a time when working people could count on uh, collecting their share of the gains of productivity in our economies. Uh, and, and the way we do that is pretty simple, right? It's antitrust enforcement, progressive taxation, labor rules. The problem is that Davos man has, has gotten a hold of the basic mechanisms are, of our democracy and can weaponize them uh, against democracy itself. So I, I, I don't have a rosy view, uh, but I do have a pragmatic view. And the solutions are, are, are simple, though difficult to execute.
0: So the the last thing, and I I promise to let you go after this, but I guess what confuses me about all of this is, in the long run, what Davos Man is doing is going to lead to massive instabilities. It leads to destabilization, but it doesn't seem like Davos Man is is necessarily afraid of that. He's more afraid of, you know, I guess losing profits. Is this just a problem of of short term thinking? Like, why is Davos Man so afraid of? Uh, potentially maybe giving up a little bit of his wealth uh, to taxes. I mean, it's been done in the past um, and the wealthy had to go along with it. So why not now? What's the fear for Davos man?
1: I think Davos man is like a victim of his own propaganda, right? He really does believe that government is just feckless and uh, 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 represents a squandering of money. I mean, the classic Davos man playbook is first you dismantle some kind of public infrastructure you cut spending for something. Then uh, it be, the, a program becomes uh, impotent. And then you say, look, this isn't working. Let's just wipe it out altogether and then transfer the process.
0: We'll see cuts in a uh, department, a public department, and then they'll say, see, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Well, you just cut the, 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 right.
1: uh, the... I mean, this is the story of subsidized childcare. care. This is the story of publicly financed health care. This is the story of housing programs. You know, there's always the story, oh, there's corruption, there's inside dealing, it's ineffective, bureaucrats can't be trusted. But there's always scarcity that goes along with that. So I, I mean, I think Davos man just reflexively views himself as the good guy. And if you're the good guy, then the more money you've got, the more good you can do. And an intended benefit of that is the Davos man, in any crisis, can just buy the next private island, the next private jet, the ultimate gated community. I mean, Benioff, you know, has been given all these talks during the pandemic about how the pandemic is this great unifier, you know, he went on Jim Cramer's show in April, 2020, we're all uniquely vulnerable to this virus. And it's, it's, it's unified us. He's speaking at the time, you know, from his mansion on the big Island of Hawaii, or maybe it's his $28 million property overlooking San Francisco Bay. I can't remember. He's, you know, tweeting out pictures of himself uh, with no other human in sight on a boat, except for Lars Ulrich, you know, the Metallica drummer. Uh, I mean, he's, he's, he's saying these things at a time when like people like Steve Schwartzman are having dinner parties at his mansion in the Hamptons by giving everybody rapid antigen tests at a time when New York city public schools, you know, can't open for in part because of lack of testing provisions. I mean, it's just demonstrably false that we're all somehow united. I was going to
0: say, it reminds me of when, uh, and I mean, I I don't consider these people Davos man, but You know, like when when Arnold Schwarzenegger was doing uh, videos telling people to stay inside during the pandemic and he's like petting his, you know, exotic animals that he has. And he's like, stay inside. And I'm just thinking to myself,
1: you're like your wealth while you're telling us this. (laughs) Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. So I I mean, I, I think to the extent to which we're counting on Davos, man. Uh, To feel some sense of shame that turns into responsibility, I think we better give up on that. Uh, I mean, as we speak, you know, Jeff Bezos is trying to get Rotterdam uh, to remove this bridge. This is Europe's largest port in the middle of uh, the supply chain disruption so that he can clear the path for his $500 million, 400-foot yacht. Uh, this is after the hubbub over him shooting himself into space to the tune of five and a half billion dollars. So we, we need to take responsibility for our economies ourselves. We need to get the levers of democracy back from the billionaires.
0: Well, I want to thank you again, Peter S. Goodman, for coming on Parallax Views. I'm assuming everyone knows that they can get uh, the book Davos Man from their favorite independent booksellers, preferably. Uh, but how can my listeners
1: uh, keep up with your work? Uh, Check me out at uh, the New York Times or my website is petersgoodman.com. And I hope you you do check out the book and, and find it worthwhile. I appreciate your time.
0: Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I highly, highly recommend you check out Peter Goodman's new book, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. It is a highly invaluable, informative read. As always, if you support the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. You can support me at the 1, 5, 10, 15, or $100 tiers. Any amount will help, and your contribution is greatly appreciated. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Jeralax Views. To Parallax Jeralax
2: Views with J. 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 The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, If it. nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic community or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.